Amen. And it has been a great weekend uh, of God just moving in the hearts and the lives of, uh, of our students and all of those that have come alongside and have helped in uh, various ways. I know that you've seen that, uh, the joy of the Lord being expressed through their time. And uh, so thankful for Cody and his leadership. And so grateful for all those that came and made meals or opened up your homes and uh, allowed uh, this weekend to be what it was as you opened yourself to be a vessel used by the Lord for his glory. And so we are so grateful for that. My name is Pastor Adam. I have the honor and the privilege of being the pastor here at Community Baptist. And you join us today. If you're a guest, I want to invite you. There's a connect card in the seat in front of you down below. If you would take an opportunity sometime during the service uh, just to fill that out, uh, I'll think you're taking notes, and man, you can just kind of do that, and I'll think, man, I'm really preaching good. They're taking notes, so if you want to you fill that out, you can leave it in your seat when you get up to exit after the service, or we would encourage you to put it in the offering box as you walk out. We would love to just be able to connect with you and know that you were here with us today. We are continuing on in a series entitled Not Today, Satan, where we have been looking at the seven deadly sins, sins that the enemy used to gain foothold into our lives. Now, I plan out each Sunday of a series well in advance. This Sunday, we come to the deadly sin of lust. So if you're a guest with us today, we're about to have the birds and the bees talk. (laughs) It may get a little uncomfy in here, but you know what? It shouldn't. We should never be ashamed to talk about in church that which God was not ashamed to create. And what I pray that you will see especially you young people, but for all of us as well. I pray that you will see God's truth of sex, of marriage, intimacy, and love as the Bible lays out. Now, maybe, just maybe, you've gotten information from some individual that maybe you think, well, they, they kind of know what I'm talking about. Look, your, your, your older cousin, Eddie, if it ain't coming from Scripture, they lean you wrong. We're going to see what God's Word has to say about this deadly sin, this sin that has destroyed so many families, has destroyed so many lives, has left scars across the hearts of our young people because their household was not built around the foundation of Scripture and portrayed the true biblical picture of marriage and love and sex from God's holy word. And so uh, we are going to take a a look at that today. Uh, Lust and lustful pleasures downgrades all the goodness of sex to its lowest common denominator, its physical dimension. Lust is about individual gratification and not honoring God truly by loving another person. Lust involves taking and getting rather than mutual self-seeking, of lifting and building one another up for the glory of God according to the word of God. Lust reduces something soul deep to something skin deep. It takes a good and a perfect gift given to us by God, and it removes the boundaries and the heart behind that good gift and where we are to come and connect at a deeper level than just the physical aspect. It removes that and replaces that soul connection with nothing but a mere skin connection. And so, therefore, 
What it becomes is a cheap substitute for the real and the true thing that God has given us. It's like eating cereal out of a bag and not out of a box. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you used to go to the cupboard, and when you would go in the cupboard, you poured your cereal out of a bag and not out of a box. And then one day, somehow, you came across the reality that cereal exists in a box, and it, it like, really tastes good. The enemy will always try to give you a cheap substitute for that which God has already blessed and given to you. And so we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11, found there in the Old Testament, just to the right of, you guessed it, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we are going to be looking at one of the saddest chapters in all the Bible. In fact, G. Campbell Morgan, the great theologian and, and preacher, said this, in the whole of the Old Testament literature... There is no chapter more tragic or full of solemn and searching warning than this. And what we're going to do is we're going to encounter a man named David, King David, who is said in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. And he is going to fall victim to this deadly sin of lust. And we're going to see that it is going to ruin his life and his home in so many various facets and ways. And it is going to have a ripple effect that it is going to ruin the lives of other individuals as well. I think we need to also pause and reflect upon the reality that this message is for everybody. It's, it's, it's for our youth. It's for our adults. It's for single people, it's for men, it's for women, it's for married folks, it's for everybody. Because I want you to understand, if David can fall victim, a man who in Scripture, the only one that is given the the moniker, a man after God's own heart, if he can fall victim to the sin of lust, then you better believe each and every one of us can fall victim to it, will fall victim to it, if we're not careful. But... The good news is God's word doesn't just expose the sin, it gives us a solution. And so we're going to see this devious nature of Satan's scheme in lust, but we're also going to see God's beautiful solution to that as well. Now, I'm not going to read all of uh, this passage of scripture. I would encourage you to do so because uh, this is what God has laid on my heart. But God's word is alive and it is active. And so I want to encourage you at some point today. Uh, that you would get along with God and you would read this and allow God to reveal to you from this passage of Scripture what it is that you need to see and what it is that, that you need to know. But in this chapter, David, he stays in Jerusalem while his army goes to fight the Ammonites at a walled city called Rabbah. And while he's there, he takes a nap and he gets up from his nap and he starts to walk on the roof of his house And he sees, in the distance, he sees a woman named Bathsheba taking a bath. And he starts to longingly look at her, and he starts to have lust well up in his his heart. And so he sends some servants to go get her and bring her to him. And then they have a, a sexual relation that results in her becoming pregnant. Now, this is a problem for David. Because he wants to do all of his sin like the enemy tries to convince us to do in the darkness. So now he's got to cover up his sin. 
So as a result, he brings her husband back from the battle lines, Uriah, brings him back and tries to get him to sleep with his wife on two separate occasions. He does not do so. So he, David, ends up writing a letter to Joab, the commander of the army, seals it and gives it to Uriah to take to Joab. And little does Uriah know, it's actually his death sentence. It's actually his death note. Because that letter tells Joab to make sure that Uriah is killed in a battle. And so Joab follows his king's order and edict, and he makes sure that Uriah is killed in battle. And then once word gets back that Uriah has died, he tries to act as if he were fulfilling the role of redeemer like Boaz does with Ruth. So not only does he commit adultery, not only does he commit multiple murders, but now he tries to cover up her sin by making himself look better in the eyes of people. This poor widowed woman, I'll take her into my home and I will make her my wife and I will fulfill the role of redeemer and make sure that his lineage lives on. But the reality of the truth is he's just trying to cover up his sin. So what does this event teach us about our world today? Well, first, let's look at the deception of lust. The very first thing is that lust is a deception that the enemy uses to try to synthesize the true joy that we find from true biblical love. Verse 1 says this, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. You notice that it says that the time when kings go out to battle, and that's King David. So he should have been on the battle lines. He shouldn't have been back in Jerusalem. He should have been with his soldiers. He should have been with the army. He should have been at the very least giving them advice and encouragement as they fulfilled what it is he called them to do. But instead, he stayed back. He was in a place that he shouldn't have been. Whether that's a website, whether that's a movie, whether that's lunch or coffee with somebody other than uh, somebody that you're married to for the, for the adults and you start to begin an emotional affair with somebody, you start to venture into places that you should not be. And as a result of that, the enemy starts to gain a foothold in your life and in your heart. David not only found himself somewhere that he wasn't supposed to be, but he was idle. He just kind of lounged around. He should have, at least if he was back there, he should, have, he should have been doing something other than taking a nap and taking a walk. He should have been doing some kind of king stuff, coming up with some kind of rules or some kind of laws or doing something. But he's idle. But not only was he idle, he was isolated. No accountability was built around him. He'd also developed a sense of invincibility. Listen to me. If you're alone, never be idle. If you're idle, make sure you're never alone because those two things are a deadly combination that can open you up to spiritual attacks from the enemy where you are less likely to defend against them. So as Joab is laying siege to Rabbah, Satan begins to lay siege to David. So in verse 2, we see that It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now, notice it says that he saw. Now, this is a picture of not just he he happened to be walking on the roof. He didn't know Bathsheba was going to be there, and he sees her bathing and says, Oh, that's not for me to see. I'm a married man. That's not for me to see. No, 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 no. What the picture is is that he kept looking. 
longingly looked, continued to lustfully look at her. Matthew 5.28 says this, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The moment he didn't turn his eye and walk away from that, and he allowed that image to linger in his vision and for him to continue to lustfully look at her, he's already committed adultery. That's God. That's not, that's not me saying that. That's Jesus saying that. And if we say we're a follower of Jesus Christ, then we can't cut out part, portions of Scripture that we don't agree with or doesn't fit our lifestyle. If we say we're followers of Jesus Christ and he's our king and it's his command, then everything that he reveals in his word or what we align our lives with. We don't try to get this to align with our lifestyle. We align our lifestyle with this. He longingly looks, doesn't walk away, doesn't do as Job offers great advice to do. In Job 31.1, Job says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. Now, this is speaking in, in universal terms. It's, it's just, uh, I'm not going to look lustfully at another person. I made a covenant with my eyes. I've entered into an agreement with my eyes that I am not going to allow impure images to enter into my vision. It's sad to say that one of the greatest exports of our country is pornography. And I'm, I'm not too naive to believe that our young people have not been exposed to pornography. And sometimes, this is where it starts to get a little uncomfortable. Is that we, can't we really talk about this in, in church? Have you read the Song of Songs? Let me tell you, God talks about sex, and he talks about it in a very beautiful way. Satan distorts it. You, you better believe that friends are going to be talking to your children about sex, and they may not be pulling it from Scripture. They may be pulling it from the distorted view that the world paints it. There are school systems and entities that are put in place to teach our young people not the biblical truth of sex, but the worldly truth of sex. So parents, if you're not having that discussion, as uncomfortable as it may be, then you are failing because I'm telling you, if you don't have a plan for your children, the devil sure does. We need to make sure that everybody understands what the Bible says about this such important topic and manner. Now, verse 3, look what happens. Now he acts on it. He's opened himself up. And now he acts on it. Verse 3 says, And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Now, the truth of the matter is, David's heart was already compromised. He had already rejected God's plan of marriage being between one man and one woman. He'd, he'd already rejected that. In 1 Samuel 25, 42-43, we read that he's already taken multiple lives. In 2 Samuel 3, verses 2 through 5, we see that he takes even more wives. So he's rejected God's plan and rejected God's gift 
uh, uh, perfect and good gift of sex and sexual intimacy between one man and one woman in the confines of marriage. he's, He's already rejected that. So Bathsheba and his sin with Bathsheba was the climax of a heart that was already deceived. A heart that already had been compromised in that area and saying, I'm willing to compromise in in this realm of my life. I'm willing to reject what God's word has to say about this. I'm going to cut out these passages of scripture because they don't really align with how it is that I want to live my life. Lust, like all the sins we are looking at in this series, is man's attempt to engineer their own happiness. Now, you look at the world around me. You look at the world around you and all the pain and all the brokenness. And what you see is a result of man trying to engineer their own joy and their own happiness. They're trying to synthesize the gifts that God has given, perverted by Satan, and use them for their self-benefit. And as a result, we just make it worse and worse and worse and worse. That's what we experience, and lust is no different. It's taking the gift, the God-given gift of love and intimacy, and it's perverting it and distorting it to be something other than what God intended it to be, and it just causes more destruction. It causes more pain. A good picture of what lust does, how it devours us and it destroys us, is how the Inuits used to trap and kill wolves. So the Inuits, they would take... They would take a knife, a sharp, large blade, and they would coat it with caribou blood, and then they would freeze it. Then they would take more caribou blood, and they would coat that first layer, and then they would freeze it again until there were multiple layers of caribou blood, and that blade was hidden within that frozen blood. They would stick it on a large block of ice, and when the wolf picked up the scent of that blood, it would come over, and it would find a nice caribou blood popsicle, and it would start to lick. And the taste of blood would start to get in its mouth. Now, what the wolf was too dumb to realize is his tongue was also becoming frozen and numb. It could taste the blood in its mouth, but it couldn't feel its tongue anymore. So after it licked the blood away from the knife, now it found the exposed blade. And it would start to lick. Now they start to taste the warmth of the new blood, failing to realize it's actually their own blood. And because they whipped up in such a frenzy at that point, they would continue to lap at that blade and lap at that blade and lap at that blade all night until it bled itself out and it died. That's what lust does to each and every individual that comes to it. It'll give you a little bit of taste of this may bring some pleasure, this may bring some satisfaction, And then you get whipped up in more and more of a frenzy and you start to laugh at it and laugh at it only for saying to reveal the blade that is hidden in it and it will destroy your life. It will destroy your life completely. Individuals that begin to look at pornography, they never start looking at pornography at the rate and at the depth that they look at at first. It's little bit by little bit because the, the insatiable appetite of more and more to engineer happiness. We know that this doesn't satisfy. I thought it did for a second, but, but it doesn't anymore. And so now I need more and I need more and it becomes more and more depraved. And as a result, we start to devour ourselves to feed that pleasure. And that's exactly what we see in David's life. We see the destruction. This would literally ruin his home and his life for for generations to come. He would bring into his home a destructive nature that would 
cause him to commit multiple murders. Look at verse 17. Oftentimes we say, David committed murder and he, he, killed, he had Uriah killed. No, 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 it wasn't just Uriah. It was multiple murders. Look at verse 17. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. There were many people that were killed as David was trying to cover up this sin. And the sin of lust destroys and has a ripple effect that affects so many other individuals. How many homes have been wrecked and ruined by the sin of lust that has had a ripple effect on the children who didn't grow up with those scars and those wounds, not knowing how to deal with them appropriately? And as a result, the, the, the chain and that curse can continue on generation after generation after generation. And I pray that today, if that has been a curse in your family, that that curse is broken, that it ends with you by you relying upon the power of God Almighty to break those chains in your life. So our sins don't just affect us. So is it just don't have sex then? Is sex bad? Is sex evil? Is sex sinful? What about celibacy? Well, I will say this. The church has done a really bad job of teaching a biblical truth. There are some people that are called to celibacy. Now, we, we don't want to necessarily uh, address that or talk with that. What we teach is just stay pure until you get married, and then when you get married, you can have sex as much as you possibly want. Well, God tells us, and Paul communicates God's word to us, that sometimes he calls people to celibacy. And the church shouldn't remove that from the table. God may call some of you to be celibate. He, he may very well do that. And I pray that you would honor that call if God places on your life. It's not an easy call, but nothing that God calls us to is easy. Marriage isn't easy. Trust me, marriage isn't easy. Because there's an enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy and wants to do that in your marriage as well. So both the church and culture send mixed messages about sex. Does sex mean everything or does it mean nothing? Is it something that's sacred? Is it something that's sinful? Is it something that's in between? Is it for procreation? Is it for personal intimacy? Is it for physical pleasure? Well, what God's Word teaches is that our sexuality including our bodies, our hormones, our desires, and the pleasures that stem from them are a good gift given to us by God when we use them as God intended them to be used. Sin of lust, however, dims and distorts our view of sex, of beauty, of uh, uh, personhood, and the image bearer of the other person, and damages our ability to truly love. It damages our ability to truly love God, to truly love others, and to truly love ourselves. As Frederick Beckner uh, is quoted as saying, contrary to Miss Grundy, sex is not a sin. But contrary to Hugh Hefner, it's not salvation either. Like nitroglycerin, it can be used to blow up bridges or heal hearts. The power is in how you use it. If you use it as God intended it to be used, listen to me. Listen to me, young people. If you use it the way that God intended it to be used, it can be used to bring God glory because you're using the gift the way that he intended the gift to be used. If you use it outside of the boundaries that God has set up for that gift to be used, then it is completely destructive to you and to those that are around you.
ultimately it boils down to our desires and where do they stem from? Do they, just, do they stem from a pure heart that has been uh, cleansed by the blood of Christ Jesus or do they extend out of the fleshly desires for self-gratification? So ultimately what we, look like, what we look at is we have to look at the desires, right? So we've seen the, 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 the deception, we've seen the destruction, but now we need to look at the desires, in Matthew 5, 8, we find how it is that we can be equipped to say, not today, Satan. When the scheme of the enemy of lust comes at us, we find in Matthew 5, 8, the antidote to stand firm and say, not today, Satan. God's word says in Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, you can't make your heart pure. We talked about that last night was able to share with them the reality that our good enough is not good enough, that we can't purify our own hearts. Now, this verse of Scripture really speaks on two planes. It speaks on a, a temporal plane of where we are at now, but it also speaks on an eternal plane. The eternal plane it speaks on is that you have to place your faith in Christ Jesus so he removes your heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh that now you have a cleansed heart. Remember, we talked about the righteousness of Christ being bestowed upon those that place their faith in Christ Jesus. And then you will see God. That's the eternal aspect of it, that one day you will enter into God's kingdom and you will get to see God. But it's also a temporal, uh, this earthly life experience as well, that those that have a pure heart will see God. Ultimately, you will see Jesus and his work for the reality of what it is, that he is God's son, that he is the great reflection, that he is the embodiment of, of God Almighty, that he is the radiance, as the author of Hebrews would say, that he is the perfect image of God, for he is God in the flesh, but it also, not only do we get to see Christ in his fullness, but we also get to see each other in our fullness because each and every one of us are image bearers of God. And so I see in you that you care and bear the image of God. So I will never mistreat you or misalign you because you care the image of God and also because Christ Jesus died for you just the way he died for me. He thought you valuable enough that he would die for you just the way he died for me. So should I not treat you with as much respect as our God that we say we serve treats individuals with, regardless of whether or not they get their view of sexuality and sex from the Bible, regardless of whether or not they affirm this. Now, we need to teach this and boldly proclaim it and not be ashamed to teach what God's word teaches, but I can also teach you truth and love. I don't have to be demeaning to you. I don't have to look down on you. I don't have to yell at you. I can share God's word with you out of an overflow of my heart for a desperate desire for you to know the reality is you don't have to eat cereal out of a bag. God's giving you cereal in a box, something far greater than anything you're experiencing right now. James 1, 14 through 15 says this, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, the desire he's talking about is fleshly desires. It's a desire that originates not out of a pure heart, but out of a fleshly heart, a heart that wants only to gratify and satisfy self. But you go on and read in verses 16 through 18, it says this, Do not be deceived, my beloved brother. Do not be deceived like, like David was deceived. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You see what this passage of Scripture is talking about. 
that everything that God has given us, notice it refers to him in this passage of scripture as a father of lights. That's harking us back to the creation where he first created the world and then he created man and woman and joined them together in holy union where the two became one flesh. Part of the marriage covenant that he established was the good and the perfect gift of sexual intimacy. Notice there is no variation or shadow. In other words, he doesn't change that. It is to be used as God intended it to be used for all of creation because nobody else can come behind God and say, yeah, yeah, no, we're changing that now. We've outgrown that now. No, no, no. He's the one that created it. He's the one that formed it. He's the one that fashioned it. And so, therefore, we submit to it and use it. And what you will find is when you live within the boundaries that God has created for you, you're going to find more joy and more pleasure than when you try to step out of the boundaries and engineer your own happiness and your own joy. So it's not necessarily that our desires are bad. It's that when we use them in a way that God never intended them to be used, that they become destructive. C.S. Lewis would write this in his book, Weight of Glory. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. In other words, my kids, when it gets hot, we turn on the sprinkler. They got a sprinkler. That's just, what, that's just what we got. We got for them. And you know what? They're happy with it. They get out there and they run around in the sprinkler and the sprinkler's going. And, and man, that, that's good. I remember going over to my papa's house and he would he drilled some holes in a bucket and hung it up in a tree and stuck a water hose in it. And water came out and I could play all day in it. They're happy with a sprinkler. What happens is, though, if they've never been to a swimming pool, and I come to them and I say, hey, you don't want to go swimming? We, we got a friend of ours that's got a swimming pool. They want you to come over to a swimming pool. No, 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 we're good in the sprinkler. Because they never experienced the joy and the satisfaction of swimming in the pool. So many of us have never truly experienced the joy of what the Bible lays out for a man and a woman to experience within the covenant relationship of a marriage that when we are called to this, it seems foreign to us because we have yet to truly grasp the fact that God is a giver of good and perfect gifts and the enemy wants to pervert it and then repackage it to sell it to you as if it's actually something better. But there is nothing greater than the gifts that God gives us. Psalm 37, 4 says this, take the light in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, notice that. It, it, don't, don't twist them. He'll give you the desires of your heart, so take delight in the Lord. No, no, no. It says, if you take delight in the Lord, if that is your focal point, if that is the stepping stone, then he will give you the desires of the, your heart because the desires of your heart will align with God and his word. Of all religions, Christianity has the most elevated and exalted view of sex. Out of all religions, the Bible doesn't teach sex is bad. It teaches that it is a beautiful gift to be shared with one man and one woman within the covenant relationship of marriage. And so, therefore, it is the church's job to outdo Satan in portraying true sexuality. 
And I will say this is one of the areas that we have absconded. This is one of the areas that we have neglected within the church. We have harped on one form of sexual immorality. And, and you can go to church and you can hear about the evils of homosexuality. But are we preaching about the evils of sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman? About cohabitation? Uh, living together and, and, and experiencing what is meant to be a sexual union only within marriage? No, I think sometimes we can just paint off this evil picture on a certain few that have decided to live their life outside of the boundaries that God has created for us, totally neglecting the others that are doing the same. But here's the thing. God's word shows that sex inside that covenant marriage, of, uh, 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 that covenant relationship of marriage it's actually beautiful. It's, it's one of the most glorious things. It's actually an act of worship. We cannot fully understand the damaging, disorienting, and disorderly aspect of sex if we don't understand the well-ordered, delightful, and God-glorifying form the broken version fails to measure up to. God gave us sex for gratification, yes. God gave us sex for procreation, yes. But it's so much more than that. God created sex to give a man and his wife the most beautiful means of expressing their love for one another, their trust for one another, and their commitment to one another. Listen to Proverbs 5, 18 through 20. Now it's really going to get uncomfy. <laughs> Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely dear, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman, embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Now, the pastor just said breasts in church. Now, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, that some of these youth, they can go home, they didn't hear one other word than, the pastor said breast in church. They may never come back again. Their parents are going, what did you learn in church today? The Bible's talking about breasts. <laughs> he had tattoos and on his neck. <laughs> Sorry, Cody. You, you, may say that you, you may not have some of them back, okay? <laughs> Let me just say this. God can transform anybody. God can change the life of anybody. That's the Savior I serve. Why I wanted you to look at that verse and passage of Scripture is because it's all throughout the Bible, both good and bad. When it's used properly, man, it's lifted up in some of the most poetic of terms. But when it's used outside of what God intended it to be, it's used in some of the most destructive and God-separating terms in all of Scripture. Lust unites bodies but not souls. It strips off more than clothes. It strips off the other person's humanity. So when it talks about out of a pure heart, we'll see God. It means that I see you as an image bearer of God. I see you as somebody so precious that Christ would die for. Lust does not want the full humanity of a person. Lust doesn't want to know that person and their needs, doesn't want to know that person and their vulnerabilities, doesn't want to know that person and their fears, doesn't want to know that person and their dreams or their struggles. Lust wants to know it craves low lights, a haze of reality, and complete saturation of lies. That's, that's what lust is. 
I'm a little hesitant to do this next illustration after everything I've just said, but I'm going to go with it, okay? I didn't come to faith in Jesus until I was 31 years old. So my life before Jesus looked radically different than what God's word lays out as what a man should live their life like. So there were times before I came to know Jesus. In fact, when I was arrested, now let me clear, I got to clarify this too, right? Man, I'm just digging, I'm digging, digging deep. I was, I always got to say, I always got to make sure I reference that when I was arrested, that was long, long time ago, right? So guests in here like, what's that? No, many, many years before I came to faith in Christ Jesus, I was arrested inside of a place that is so disaptly named a gentleman's club. Now, there are no gentlemen that are actually there. It's just a den of lust. Now, why is it that these individuals that have this thirst for lust that go to these type of clubs, why is it that the people that work there never use their real name? It's always, next on stage is candy. <laughs> Why isn't it, hey, next on stage is Sally Smith. She's got two kids. Her parents divorced when she was eight years old. She's been married three times, and her last husband beat her. She really doesn't want to do this, but she feels like she doesn't have any choice to provide for her kids. She loves dogs, and she loves her kids with all of her heart. If she could really do anything, she'd be a dental hygienist. Now, why isn't that ever proclaimed in a place like that? Because the flames of lust would be extinguished immediately because lust doesn't want to know the person. Lust doesn't want to know their pain. Lust doesn't want to know their story. Lust doesn't want to know their sorrow. Lust doesn't want to know their dreams. Lust doesn't want to know anything about them because that gets in the way of them utilizing them as a means to an end to get what it is they want. It's the complete opposite of love. It's the complete opposite of what it is that God has given us. In fact, look at the terminology in Genesis 4.1. The first picture of sex. You know what the word is that's used to describe sex? And Adam knew his wife. He knew her. He connected with her on a deeper level than just physical intimacy, but emotional intimacy, mental intimacy, spiritual intimacy. It's this picture of connectivity. It's this picture of the willingness where it says that they were naked and unashamed to say, in all of my faults, in all of my failures, in all of my flaws, even the areas I don't like about myself, I'm willing to be laid bare before you because you accept me and you love me for who I am. Now, that brings God glory, and that brings God honor. Now, think about this. In the passage of Scripture where it talks about Jesus separating the sheep from the goats, what is the word that he tells the goats for when they are to depart? Depart from me because I never knew you. I don't have that intimate relationship with you. You, you may have tried to connect with me on some kind of level that was superficial where you use me for all of my gifts and you use me to bring gratification into your life, but I don't really know you. And it, I don't know you because I didn't want to know you, but because you didn't really want to be known. You wanted to dress up in fig leaves. You wanted to hide. You wanted to stay as something that you really weren't. And you wanted to play this game of deception that led to so much destruction to the point now you're separated from me for all of eternity. To be known by our God is to be in the most intimate of relationships. Look at Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. 
Ephesians 5, 31 through 32 says this. 31 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, Paul goes on to say, this is mysterious. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So he's talking about the, the intimacy and the, the covenant relationship of marriage and the physical intimacy of taking the good gift of sex and using it for God's glory is actually a picture of Christ and his church. Because we become one in flesh with, with Christ, that we're in Christ and Christ is in us, that we become one. Now, Satan as a result of this reality, is perpetually haunted by this. It tears at the heart of his scheme, which is first, to blur and destroy any reflection of God's image, and secondly, to block the world from seeing the love that the bridegroom has for his bride. Satan hates sex with an unholy passion because ultimately it shows when used right as God intended it, it shows the glory of God. It shows that he is a good and a perfect father in heaven who loves his children and gives them things that bring them joy but also bring glory to him when used properly. What it does is lust gets us to worship the shadow instead of the source that casts the shadow. It gets us to, 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 uh, to settle for a, uh, uh, a cheap substitute other than what it is that God intended for us to have and for us to use. Now, you can never be pure apart from Christ, ever. You have to give your life to the Lord, and he will give you a pure heart. To where now, through the renewal of your mind, you can take those desires that are, are given to us by God and are good and healthy, and you can use them in a way that brings God glory. Until then, you will never be able to do that. But how do we maintain that? How do we keep that in this broken world that's so saturated with the world's view of sex? Well, that question is asked in Psalm 119, where we see that ultimately it begins with the word. That the word is how we keep our hearts pure. And so in Psalm 119, 9 through 11, God's word says this, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. In other words, that how do we keep our way pure? First, we got to have our way made pure by giving our life to Christ. But how do we keep it that way? We live our life according to this. That everything we do, even the area of sex is, is laid out for us and determined by what God's word says. Not what the world says, not what man says, but by what God's word says. Now, not only is it the word, but it's your walk. It's how you live your life. It's what it is that you're feeding. What are you looking at? What are you putting into your ears? What are you putting into your eyes? Where are you going? Where are you around? Look, bad company corrupts good character. Who are you surrounding yourself with? Individuals that want to live to this standard or individuals that reject this wholeheartedly? Who do you surround yourself with? Galatians 5.16 says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You walk according to God's Word, which is Spirit-breathed. When you live this out, the Holy Spirit's not going to take you up on the rooftop to where you're put in positions to look and to gaze and to do those things. It's going to lead you away from that. You're going to be at battle where you should be. You're going to be on the front lines where you should be. 
But not only is it the word, not only is it your walk, but listen, it's your worship. What you do with your body is worship. There's no area of your life that God doesn't say, I'm king over. Our bedrooms are not uh, uh, void of that. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your... There is something connected with how we use our bodies and the spiritual act of worship. And what God's word says is that we need to understand this reality. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, this act of intimacy portrays Christ and the church. Those that have placed their faith in Christ, God says that I know you. You're in this intimate relationship with me. That God stands calling each and every one of us to come before him in our spiritual nakedness, in all of our flaws, in all of our failures, in all of our shortcomings. Not for him to point those out to us and to shame us and to guilt us, but no, to say, look at the cross. That's my word spoken to you to say, I love you. I see you. I see you in all of your nakedness. I see you in all of your brokenness. I see you in all of the flaws and all of the failures that you have. And you know what? I accept you through my son, Jesus Christ. I love you. I care for you. I want to know you. And the only way you will not be known by God is if you don't want to be known by God. But if this very day you will come to him in repentance of your sin place your life in his care in his hands he will forgive you of your sins and make you a new creation the old will go and the new will come then you can start to enjoy the good gifts of life as God intended it to be lived not only that but you can be a voice not that you just abstain from it and let me tell you y'all are going to have y'all going to have a tough time in this world I'm telling you a lot of that is our own fault because the church got so busy doing TV giveaways and iPad giveaways and all this other nonsense that we try to make church about. About how many people we could get in and how big uh, of a church and, and numbers. And that's what we made it about. Instead of making it about proclaiming the word of God and living out the word of God. That now you're inherited in a world that knows not Joseph. But let me tell you something. Not only do you need to abstain and live your life according to the will of God and the word of God, but you need to proclaim it. And that goes for each and every one of us. We need to proclaim that good news. We need to let other individuals know about the goodness of God and his ways. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And don't just keep it to yourself, but share it to all those that are around you.